Scripture today from Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the Rimmers have chickens. We have chickens. We have 12 chickens in my house, which means we get, uh, we're right now getting 7 to 10, 11 eggs a day at my house. We put eggs on everything. I feel like we're eating eggs all the time. If you ever need eggs, you should call me. I probably have some uh, because we just have eggs all the time. But, but the interesting thing about having chickens, it's a lot of fun. But, but I'm realizing there are all these chicken metaphors that I've used and I've heard other people use that I never understood until I had chickens. Give you a couple examples. Coming home to roost. Okay, my chickens, they like to roost in their place. They have their place. And if another chicken's in their place, oh goodness. They like to lay eggs in the same spot too. Okay, and if another chicken's in the spot when it's their turn to lay eggs, they make a big noise about it to get that chicken out of the way. All cooped up. Okay, if I don't get out there early enough to open my chickens, they are real mad and they are real loud and they are mad at each other. And then they give me dirty looks as I let them out of the coop. Uh, They do not like being cooped up all day. They have to get out. And even when it rains, they get out in the rain and get soaking wet because they do not want to stay in the coop all day. Pecking order. I don't we use the word pecking order all the time, but you don't understand pecking order until you see chickens work it out. Okay, this spring we had two flocks. We had six older chickens and six younger chickens, and we put them together. And for a week, it was like a war, okay? There was so much meanness, we didn't know if it was going to work or not. They had to establish a pecking order. There had to be certain chickens that were first and certain chickens that were last, and they had to work out, and you just have to let them sort of work it out. It's kind of like middle school lunchroom, right? you got to know where you are at the tables, Okay. I didn't understand pecking order until I watched chickens actually work one out violently. Okay? Having ruffled feathers. Okay? When the chickens would, I've never seen it until we put these two flocks together. And when they got mad at each other, they would. They would ruffle up their feathers and try to look real big before they would fight. And it was part of the pecking order to ruffle their feathers. To be a chicken. I have called people chicken. Normally either during sports or during session meetings. As a joke, I've never called anybody out loud a chicken during a session meeting. Okay, but but I'm telling you, my chickens are scared of everything. Their first reaction to anything I carry near the the coop is to run away from it. Then they are curious and they'll learn. So once they know, oh, that's a bowl of food, they will come running to you. Or my older chickens have discovered when I mow the grass, a lot of times I kick bugs and stuff up. And so they get excited about the tractor. My younger chickens have not figured this out yet. Okay? But, but they are chickens. 
Okay, I now understand that metaphor differently. Fox in the hen house. We, we have not had fox or raccoons or possums in the hen house because we built them to make sure they stayed out because they are outside. We see them every once in a while. Flying the coop. My chickens will fly the coop. We have to clip their wings because they will get out. And they love to get out because, well, literally the grass is greener over there because they ate all the grass over here, right? The grass is actually greener over there. Do you see how many metaphors for chickens you all use and I've used and I've heard my entire life? But then I got chickens and I was like, oh, this is where these come from. Now I understand. See, they, they, were, they were language that we all accepted, we all understood, but, but I never had chickens. So I never really thought about where they came from. I just used them in their metaphoric sense. I never knew the backstory. See, words, metaphors, concepts, they all come from somewhere. But sometimes we lose where they come from and we just use them without knowing. We do this all the time as Christians. In part because the Bible was written so long ago that the metaphors are different. Like Jesus talks about a shepherd, which everybody around knew what a shepherd was. I've been around sheep. A lot of people haven't even been around sheep let alone seen a real shepherd. Not like a pen, but somewhere where you're free-ranging with your sheep. Okay? You've never found a lost sheep. It's not part of your world. In Jesus' world, plenty of people had found lost sheep and had to bring them back to where the, the shepherd was. Okay? That was an experience. So we use this language all the time. I call it Christianese. And, and we use words that we don't always remember where they come, came from. And unfortunately, in the church, a lot of times, we're so over-familiar with them that we don't even know really the depth of the meaning of them. So today I want to talk about one of the key phrases of Christianity, and that is that Jesus saves. You've heard it, that Jesus saves. We've sang it. You've probably seen it on signs before. Jesus saves. And we use a lot of other words like forgiveness, grace, redemption. But what does it mean that Jesus saves? What does he save us from? What does he save us to? How does he save us? What part of Jesus saves us? How does salvation become ours? So you and I, we save money and we redeem coupons. We say grace before we eat. But what do those words biblically really mean? Well, the word salvation and its variants occur about 500 times in the ESV Bible. By variants, I mean salvation, save, savior, saving, all those kind of words. Something of it uses about 500 times. It is just about never related to heaven and hell. In fact, saving, we, we talk about saving a lot in terms of eternal life. It's just about never used of eternal life or anything eternal, anything post this life in the Bible. Okay, it's just not. That's just not how the Bible uses the word saves. The word save in Greek actually comes from the same word that we get the word salve from. So when you read your bulletin and it says that the sermon was called Jesus salves, that's not a typo. Okay, Jesus salves. Now, we don't use that word salve anymore. How many of you remember the word salve? Doctor would prescribe for you a salve. Everybody now uses the word ointment, which is like not quite as thick as a salve. But when you would burn yourself or something, the doctor would give you a salve and you would put that on and it would be used to kind of cover and protect and heal. That's the connotation of the word salvation. Okay, Salvation doesn't mean to rescue, to free, to forgive. It actually means to salve, to heal, to make things right. Now, sometimes in order to make things right, you have to rescue. 
Okay, and, and that's true of Israel in the Old Testament. One of the main ways the Bible talks about salvation is through the lens of Israel. In particular, that God saves Israel from, from exit in the Exodus, saves them from slavery and freedom, and that they, uh, they are saved from exile. So they're allowed to come back to their land. Okay, but again, the, the concept isn't the freedom from slavery. This concept is actually the world making, being made right. That Israel wasn't supposed to be in slavery. They were supposed to be in the promised land. And now it's made right. It's healed. Okay. Now, is there a payment for that healing? Yes. And the Bible talks about the saving work of God being the ten plagues. That God does these mighty acts to pay for their freedom. Notice, too, that when the Bible talks about salvation, it's almost never personal. Isn't that strange for us to hear? I was taught I was saved. My soul was saved. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But when you actually go look at all the times the Bible talks about saving, talking about creation. God so loved what? The world. Okay, God loves all creation. So so saving is way bigger than saving my soul. It's, It's about saving this world. It's about saving Israel. That's the main metaphor that gets used when Jesus comes to then save people. This might sound strange for us to think about. The idea that saving is actually healing and has more to do with this world and it's more corporate than individual. But you've got to understand that you live in a very individualistic society. Okay, that's the way we're brought up. We're brought up to have it our way at the restaurant. They were brought up like, like this is a me-centered world that you live in. But, but that's really kind of new for the world. Okay, and around the world, there are a lot of places where people don't think like that either. This very individualistic, very, we're, we're very eternally focused. You'd be surprised how little the Bible actually says about heaven and hell. It actually doesn't say that much about it. A lot of the Bible is really about this world. And if you go and read the end of the Bible, this book called Revelation, which is crazy. A lot of people avoid it, right? But if you read it, we don't actually stay in heaven forever. We come back here. See, part of the problem is that we've got the problem wrong. If Jesus is the answer to a problem, he's saving us from something. What is that something? We have a word for that. We call it sin. Okay, but, but you've got to understand that sin is not the bad stuff that you do. The bad stuff that you do is only part of what we mean when we say sin. The Hebrew word that is originally the word sin is an archery term. It's a metaphor. And it means to miss the mark. Okay, so you got a bullseye. So we're trying to aim at the bullseye. Okay, the how much you sin is how much away from the bullseye you are. Okay, and in the Bible, sin is, the bullseye is the glory of God. It's that you were made in the image of God and everything about you is supposed to be somehow reflective of that image and that you all have sinned and I have sinned. Some of you have sinned a lot and some of you have sinned a little. I'm not pointing fingers. Okay, some of us are pretty close on the target. Others of us miss the target completely, but none of us shot a bullseye here. That's what we call sin. We miss the mark. Or how does Paul say it in Romans 3.23? For all have sinned, missed the mark, and fallen short of the glory of God. Now there are sins that you do, sins we call sins of commission. Things that you do you're not supposed to do. But there are also sins of omission. Things you're supposed to do but you don't do. But ultimately, sin is not about the stuff you do or don't do. Sin is about a relationship. So the ultimate problem is that you are a sinner. Okay, that, that you are, because of things in your life, you choose to try to be God instead of letting God be God. And therefore, your relationship with God is broken. So bad things don't make you a sinner. 
You do bad things because you're a sinner. Everybody see that? It's part of who you are because you are in a broken relationship with God. The Bible has a word for that. Fallen. That we are all in this state of the fall. And not just us. The world is in a state of fallenness. Turn on the news this week and tell me that the world is how it's supposed to be. Okay? Uh, uh, talk, talk, to your, talk to your grandkids and talk to your kids and, and talk to, you know, where in this world is it how it's supposed to be? See, that's called sin. It's not just bad things. It's that it's not where it's supposed to be because we all have sinned. We all have missed the mark. We fall short of the glory of God and we keep doing it. And this is not just a soul problem. Oh, I hear Christians say this all the time. That this is just my shell and my real me is inside. And when I die, my spirit goes to heaven. Well, we already said that the spirit doesn't stay in heaven. It comes back here. But actually in the Bible, what a soul really is, is your spirit and your body. So with Adam, God plays in the dirt, forms an Adam, blows a spirit into him. And in, in the Bible, a body and a spirit is called a soul. So it's not just that the spirit, see, this body was meant to last forever. I'll tell you, it's not going to, right? Uh, it's falling apart. And uh, some of you have experience with that, right? Okay, but, but for Jesus to then save, heal, make things right, it's not just about punching your ticket so your spirit lasts forever. Go read 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is, Paul is very serious that your body and the physical world has to be fixed too. So I hope you already can see that when Jesus comes to save, to salve, to fix the problem, the problem is really much more serious than forgiving you of your sins. Okay, it's not enough for Jesus to forgive you and forget that you sinned. Things have to be healed. They have to be made right. They have to be made right with God and they have to be made right with each other and with creation. The problem is so much bigger than forgiving you of your little sins. A healing of relationship has to happen. See, saving is salving. Saving is a salvage operation. See that? See what I did there? Salvage operation. Okay, stuff that's dead, stuff that's dying has to be brought back. Has to be made how it is supposed to be. It's a rescue mission of healing and wholeness and freedom. And it is way bigger than just the bad stuff that you've done. See, if you don't get that, then you can compare your bad stuff. Like, at least I'm not a murderer, right? That person really deserves to be punished. I don't deserve to be. See, when, when it's all, when sin is much bigger than that, and you understand that we've all missed the mark, it doesn't really matter how much you miss the mark. If you miss the mark, you miss the mark. Okay? So you need healed, you need saved, you need salved either way. And when you understand how big the problem is, now we can start talking about what Jesus does to fix the problem. Because what a lot of people, when they say Jesus saves, what they mean is Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But that almost makes Jesus' life, teachings, miracles, resurrection. Like, that means that, like, are those just incidents? Like, they, they happened on the way to the cross or on the way back from the cross. But really, they, no, I think Jesus saves with everything about who he is, what he does, what he teaches. Okay, think about this. Jesus becoming human and living a perfect life. He's living the life that we all can't live. He's already in his life beginning to undo sin. Because he is fully God and fully human. Right? So so you and I have this separation from God. 
Okay? We have trouble getting to God, hearing from God. Okay? But in Jesus, there's no separation. He's both. He's already in his life as a baby in the manger. He's already beginning to heal the gap between human beings and God. And what does he do? He walks around this life teaching. Teaching what? About saving your soul? No, Jesus almost never says anything about that. You know what Jesus talks about? It's how you treat other people. Okay, the life that you live. He's trying to teach everybody, okay, this is how a saved, a salved life works. This is how you live a life that's salt and light that's salving for others. And he heals people. What's he doing? He's salving as he walks along. Oh, you're blind? Salve that. Okay, oh, you're lame? Salve that one too. Okay, as he's healing, as he's doing these miracles, what's he doing? He's putting life back. All the time, he's putting life back the way it should be. Okay, uh, then he does die on the cross. Yes, death, totally important to the, to the whole process because something needs to pay for sin. There's a, there's a punishment. There are wages owed to that sin. So yes, Jesus dies on the cross, but then he resurrects. It's not enough for Jesus to die and stay dead. He's got to actually defeat sin and death. Then he ascends. He goes back to be with the Father. And in welcoming Jesus back, what God is actually doing is welcoming uh, us on Jesus' behalf. And he's given the amen. The ascension is really the amen to, to Easter. Because what God, is, the Father, is saying is, yep, that worked. Yep, you're welcome. And with you, others are welcome. And Jesus still continues to work in the work of his spirit. He keeps on salving. Okay? He's not just saving. He's salving. He's healing you as the Holy Spirit works in your life. He's salving our community as the Holy Spirit is at work in the community. You start to, you start to grasp the, the breadth and the depth of the saving work of Jesus to heal this world, to heal you. And then what, what the Bible does and what the, what the church has done over the years is they've done a lot of work to try to expand on that. In other words, to try to explain about the saving work of Jesus. Paul himself uses a bunch of metaphors for talking about how Jesus saves. And one of the worst things that you can do as a church is pick one way to talk about Jesus saving and ignore all the other ones. That's a fast track to blasphemy. Okay, what you want to do is talk about all the different ways. So let me give you a few. A few other words under this heading of salving that we use a lot, but I want to give you the context. Atonement. Atonement does not mean to make up for, as if we have to atone for our sins. Atonement is actually a relational term. And you can break the word down and understand it. At one meant. To make at one. In other words, at one meant is actually the opposite of at two meant. Okay, attunement is a broken relationship. Okay, so if I have a broken relationship with somebody in my family, somebody in my life, that's attunement. I've got a separation. Atonement means healing the two to become one. And so when we talk about atonement, we are saying that Jesus actually brings the right relationship between God the Father and us. Okay, so it's a relational term for what Jesus does on the cross. There are other terms, though. Okay, we use the image of sacrifice, that Jesus sacrifices himself. That's an Old Testament image related to, to sacrificing animals to be made right with God in the temple. Okay, so, so a sacrifice, a payment has to be made. 
Another word we like to use around this topic is substitution. In other words, Jesus substitutes. It's a similar word to sacrifice, the way an animal would stand in for you. Jesus substitutes himself. He stands in for you, dying your death on the cross. But it's more than just on the negative side. Okay, uh, Luther and Calvin used to talk about the great exchange or the magnificent exchange. Think of it like a trade. Okay, that you, that you, that Jesus takes your sin, your death, your imperfect life, but he swaps you and he gives you his life. He gives you his, his sacrifice. Okay, he gives you his relationship with the Father. There's a trade and exchange that takes place. I love how Paul talks about this in the word adopted. Okay, adoption. That we are adopted. I think I like it because I have a brother who is adopted. And so it's a word that means a lot to me. And, and you might find some of these mean more to you than others. That's fine. But adopted means a lot to me because it's this accepting that we are accepted by God because of who Jesus is. And the Greek word for adopted is actually based on the word son. Literally, the word adopted is to be made a son. Son made. Okay, now, that doesn't exclude ladies. Okay, as men and women. But I think there's, it's a significance that it's son made because Jesus was the son. And men and women, we are all made. How do we get in right relationship with God? Well, we are made sons through Jesus being the son. It's like we, we get to be in on his sonship. And there's a great, that's a great thing, I think. When Jesus describes heaven, he doesn't describe it as a bunch of mansions and a gated community with golden. No, Jesus says in my father's house are many rooms that we live as sons and daughters. So I love that idea of adoption. Part of the language is also redemption and ransom. To redeem is to pay for someone to get out of slavery. Okay, literally, when you redeem a coupon, you're giving them the coupon, which we don't even do anymore because you just scan the QR code or whatever. Okay, but to redeem is to give something so that you get the discount or so you get so that when Jesus or when God redeems Israel from slavery, it's the 10 command. It's the 10 plagues, the, the miraculous work of God to free them. It's also used of redeeming, redeeming a widow. So if you remember your story of Ruth in the Old Testament, Ruth, her husband dies and she has no one to take care of her. She can't own property. Okay, she can't own businesses. So widows are really in a hard times in those days, especially. Um, and so what would happen was one of the kinsmen, one of the family members would, would pay a fee to the rest of the family to marry that person, to marry that widow and to redeem them. It's called a kinsman redeemer. Now, the word, we use the word ransom. Ransom is the money paid. Okay, ransom is just a word for the payment. It's, it's almost a similar word. Okay, so we only ever hear that word in movies when there's a kidnapping. But ransom is the payment. So Jesus dying on the cross is the ransom, the payment. And one last word I've got to cover, which is the word grace. A lot of people, when we use the word grace, we use it for the meal that we say before we eat a very unnutritious meal, right? Lord, bless this food to our bodies. We pray for a miracle. And, um, and, and we pray for the hands that prepared it. I legit have no idea where that comes from. Not in the Bible at all. In fact, uh, there's really not a lot of praying before meals in the Bible. That's kind of a 
you would pray three times a day and then we started eating three times a day. And that's where grace really comes from. The word grace actually is the same word that we get the word Eucharist from. Uh, Eucharist, communion. And it really means gratitude. Thanksgiving. Okay, in, in its purest sense, it just means gratitude. So when we have communion, we're thankful for what Jesus has done for us. When we say grace before a meal, we're thankful for the meal we're about to receive. But if you, if you so in, in its basic sense, it, it, grace actually doesn't mean forgiveness, and it surely doesn't mean a prayer before a meal. It means gratitude. It means, in fact, you say the word gracious, it reminds you that grace and gratitude are in the same word family. But if you think about all the ways the Bible uses the word, I would define it this way, as God's unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. What God means, grace means way more than God forgives you. It means God is for you. He doesn't just forget bad things that you did. Grace actually means that God is for you, that he wants to heal you, to salve you, that he wants what's best for you. And it's unmerited Meaning it's a gift you can't earn, you're never going to earn. In fact, it's more than unmerited, it's ill-merited. You deserve not grace. I deserve God's wrath, God's uh, anger. Not because of the bad stuff I do, but because I'm always doing bad stuff. Because that's my natural bent is away from God. Grace means that God wants something for you. He's for you, he's not against you. How does Jesus describe his own ministry? He says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's grace. Not just forgiveness. Way more than forgiveness. It's that God is for you. See, there are lots of ways to talk about how Jesus salves. How Jesus saves. My question for you is, have you ever really thought about all the ways Jesus saves? Or more importantly, are there ways in which you have asked Jesus to save you, but you have refused to let him to salve you? Okay, like, like it's one thing to say, Jesus, forgive me. It's a whole other thing to forgive yourself. Okay, it's, a whole, it's one thing to ask Jesus to save you from your anger. It's a whole other thing to actually heal a broken relationship with somebody else. Jesus didn't come just to save your soul. He came to salve, to heal you as a salvage operation. And I know a lot of Christians that they are fully, they, they're fine with Jesus saving their soul for eternity. But they don't really want Jesus to heal X, Y, and Z in their life because they're hanging on to that bitterness. So where are the places where Jesus needs to salve you? So the next time you hear someone say that Jesus saves, respond by telling them that Jesus salves. Now they may think you have a speech impediment, but what you actually have is good theology and a much better understanding of how Jesus saves. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.